are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik. I'm so pleased that you could join me here on what is, for me, a Thursday afternoon on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, On Thursday afternoons, 12 noon my time, we get together for a weekly time of question and answer over uh, YouTube, Facebook, and on the TWR360 platform. We especially want to give a welcome to our TWR360 audience Uh, That's a great ministry that has a spectacular reach worldwide, beginning with shortwave radio, which they've done for so long and they do so well, but now in their online presence as well through TWR360. Uh, But we're also happy to be on the YouTube platform and on Facebook Live. And if you're joining us here from one of those platforms, I want to welcome you and just say I'm glad that you've joined us here for today. And here's how it goes. I begin with a lead question. The lead question comes in by email, by a comment on our social media. Uh, It could be a leftover question from a previous week. We get the uh, question, lead question from a lot of different sources, something that I think will speak to something that a lot of people think about. Uh, And then after I'm done with the lead question, which takes maybe 15 or 20 minutes, then we open it up for the remainder of the hour for whatever questions you may have. You write them in as a comment or a side chat or however it appears on your platform. Our moderator, Devin, sees it and he passes it on to me. And that's how we get through our question and answer time here together on a Thursday afternoon. So here's what we do together. I'm going to begin with our lead question today. And the lead question today is simply this. Should we pray for the souls of the dead? And it comes from uh, Taran. Thank you, Tarn, for your question. I'm just going to read to you Tarn's question. It reads like this. Hi, thank you guys so much for your ministry. I wanted to ask, I know that the concept of praying for the souls of the dead is based on verses from the Apocrypha and is not biblical. But when I was younger, I reasoned to myself, well, God is outside of time, so I'll pray for them before they died and he can apply it back to them. Uh, is this also unbiblical? Well, Taryn, you're asking a great question there, and I want to deal with it first just kind of in the fundamental question, which you already know the correct answer to, but I'm going to review it for the sake of our audience. And the correct answer to that simple question is, no, we really shouldn't pray for the souls of the dead. Now, let me explain this, because first, this is an understandable and natural thing for people to do. You know, in everyday life, we find a way to push away thoughts of death and eternity. We don't take those things seriously, or at least most of us don't. But when someone we know or someone we love dies, we're suddenly confronted with the reality of death and eternal life. And when people we love face eternity... And if there was anything we good, could do to help them, we would want to do it. But, but here's the truth. The Bible tells us that our eternal destiny is determined by what we do in this life. And our prayers for the souls of the dead give expression 
to our own love, care, and concern for them, for the people who have gone beyond, and our love, care, and concern for them are real, but to be very straightforward, just as you expressed, Taran, those prayers really don't do the dead any good. What, what we know is, that, again, our eternal destiny is determined by what we do in this life. Here's a few scriptural passages that uh, emphasize this for us. First of all, we have 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, which says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Did you notice that? Not later, not in eternity, but now. God speaks to us as human beings now on this side of eternity. Men and women who have real choices to make about this life and eternity. We also know that Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 says this, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. I find that Hebrews passage really kind of fascinating because in it, the author to the Hebrews isn't really trying to talk about death and judgment. He's just thinking of a statement that we know to be absolutely true. And for the statement that he points to for something we know to be absolutely true is that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. As much as we know that, we also know that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That's, that's his real point. He's really talking about Jesus Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many. And the idea of dying once, but facing the judgment then, that's just brought up uh, as sort of a, a something we all know. And so that's how fundamental the Bible regards this truth. Let me give you one other verse from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So again, the idea there is very plain and very powerful that our eternal destiny is settled in the here and now not in the far off distant, not by how people might pray for us before or after we uh, die, excuse me, not take before or after, after we die, but uh, in the here and now. Now, Taran asked a very interesting aspect of this question. Uh, Taran states, um, when I was younger, I reasoned to myself, well, God is outside of time, so I'll pray for them before they died, and he can apply it back to them. Is this also unbiblical? Tarn, I would say, yes, that's also unbiblical. Just again, the Bible gives us no pattern for doing that. I mean, if, if that were the case, then, then theoretically, we could pray that Judas wouldn't betray Jesus. But, but again, the, the idea that God would assign us to pray for things that happened in the past, um, that such events could be influenced and God would apply those prayers to the past. That idea, that conception is just nowhere in the scriptures. So we don't, so to speak, time travel in the past with our prayers, nor 
are we given any kind of pattern that we should pray for the dead now? Now, I understand that Roman Catholic theology may see this differently. They make much of the idea that God gave Peter and every subsequent pope or bishop of Rome the keys to heaven and earth. And therefore, in some sense, many Roman Catholics think that the pope has power over heaven, hell, and what they would describe as purgatory, but the Bible never mentions. That's a completely unbiblical idea. Now, the idea of the pope having such authority is not biblically true. Once a person passes from this life to the next, no person on earth, including the pope, has the power to change their eternal destiny, not even in the power of prayer. So again, I would want to emphasize that this is something that we should view with compassion. Look, I've been with people who have lost a loved one in their moment of grief, and they pray, and and they pray for the soul of the one departed. Look, that, that probably isn't the time to make a theological correction. They just ask God to bless the soul of their deceased loved one. And, and again, we, we understand that. We're respectful of their grief. And so we, we need to have a loving concern for people in their hour of grief and realize that in that grief, someone may not cross every theological T and dot every theological I. But in the big picture, we definitely understand that our eternal destiny is settled in this life, in the here and now. God tells us nothing of second chances in the life beyond. Today is the day of salvation. And one of Satan's most destructive, and if I may say effective lies, is that there is no hurry. You know, a story preachers like to tell, and it's really just a story because, of course, something like this never really happens, but... Uh, a, a man is talking to Satan and Satan's towing, telling him all his tools. And the tools of Satan include things like the, the lie that there is no God, the, the lie that there is no truth, the lie that, that, that there is no moral standard, that there is no heaven, that there is no hell. And, and Satan talks about all these different tools. And then there's one special tool that Satan prizes above all else. And the man asks, well, what's that tool? And Satan says, It's the lie that there is no hurry. And it may be that the lie that has sent more people to hell than any other single lie is that there's no hurry. That there's no reason to be urgent about getting right with God today in the here and now. But friends, we must. We must respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that we need a savior Because there's a real sense in that there's no context for the good news until we understand the bad news, the fact that we need a Savior, and to understand what God has given us in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he has done for us, especially what Jesus did for us in dying for our sins at the cross and raising from the dead in the resurrection of his new life, that when we put our trust in who Jesus is and what he did for us, especially what he did for us at the cross and in his resurrection, that we find new life in him and that we must embrace that today. Today is the day of salvation. So again, Tarn, thank you for that question. And if I could say thank you for that little spin on it, the idea of, well, you know, since God is in eternity, maybe we could say it now and he'll apply it to the past. 
But sorry, for that specific angle of your question, we find no biblical instruction or warrant for that as well. So with that, we're going to go on to the questions that appear now in our live chat forwarded to me from our moderator, Devin. Devin, thank you for your work today. Uh, Devin asks a question, again, from uh, Tara, apparently a different Tara. Uh, uh, Christ completes us, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, and makes us whole. Uh, it makes us whole. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, shouldn't we believe we're no longer broken in light of these scriptures, even though we sometimes sin? Is brokenness and weakness the same? Tara, I would say that um, in those who have been given new life in Jesus Christ, the healing, the restoration of our brokenness it has definitely begun in us by the work of Jesus. But, if I can just say plainly, our salvation is not yet complete. And so, it is um, acceptable, proper, for us to recognize as Christian the brokenness or the weakness that still remains in us, while at the same time acknowledging the profound work that Jesus Christ has done within us. Sometimes theologians will talk about the already and the not yet. And there's a, a sense in which there's many things in the Christian life which fulfill that description. We are already born again by God's Spirit and have new life in Him, but the working of that new life is not yet complete there's a sense in which it is still in the category of the not yet. And so, again, Tara, um, we can believe that we are complete in Jesus Christ. Part of that now is accomplished fact, and part of that we say in faith, knowing that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, Tara, that verse from Paul's letter to the Philippians reminds us that that work of God is not completed in us until the day of Christ Jesus. So, Tara, these are just things that we hold in tension, so to speak, and balance in the Christian life, and uh, we just kind of don't let it uh, take us off track overemphasizing one or the other. We can overemphasize the fact that we have it now, or we can overemphasize the fact that it is not yet complete. Um, we hold both of those as complementary truths. I hope that's helpful for you there, Tara, uh, responding to us from YouTube. Thank you for that. Now, uh, N asks another question from YouTube. Asks, what is the good work that God began in us and will continue to work in us that's mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, 6? So interesting, uh, N, because I hadn't uh, thought of that, hadn't read your question before uh, I just quoted that verse. But let me read it to you because it's such a great verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 um, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, the good work that God has begun in us is the work of salvation. And understand this, when God speaks of salvation in our life, that is a broad concept. It is not only the rescue 
of us from an eternal hell and the right to be with God in an eternal heaven. Of course, that's part of it. And it's a precious part of it. I would even say it's an important part of it, a vitally important part. But the good work begins with the new life, with the forgiveness of sins that we have right here, right now, with the membership that we have in God's eternal family right here, right now, with the fellowship with God's people that we enjoy right here, right now, with the adoption as sons and daughters into God's family, with the active righteousness of Jesus Christ that is bestowed upon, I could go on and on. The good work that God is going to do in us has begun, and he promises to complete it in eternity. Again, we come back to that idea that our salvation is definitely a reality in the present day. Absolutely, we don't want to deny that. But the New Testament actually speaks of our salvation in three tenses, if you will, in the past, the present, and in the future. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All three of them are concurrently true. The good work that God has begun is the work of salvation in all of its expressions, in our sanctification, our holiness, our growth and grace. These are things that should have a definite beginning in the life of the believer. Now, this leads us uh, and to a very interesting and I think significant question. What, what do we say of someone who claims to have put their faith in Jesus Christ, yet there is no evidence of a beginning even of God's good work of salvation? Well, it's fair for us and for that individual especially to question, to say, whoa, wait a minute, is this really true? I mean, because if God's work in my life is real, there should be evidence of at least its beginning in my life. Not its perfecting. That perfecting isn't going to have that completion, isn't going to happen until the day of Jesus Christ. But there should be evidence of the beginning of it. So, uh, and thank you for that question. I think it's amazing how the verse I quoted in the previous question to Tara uh, comes out now in the question that you asked. And let me move on to our third question of the day, also from YouTube. Donald asks, when an Orthodox Jew dies that is still waiting for the Messiah to come first, uh, the first time, where do they go? Okay, Donald, let me put it to you this way. Nobody who has consciously rejected God's way of salvation in Jesus Christ is going to go to heaven. That's just the simple truth. Now, there is um, a, a genuine discussion in the Christian world that has to do with people who have never heard the gospel. Jesus Christ has never been presented to them. And, and I could certainly um, include, at least in theory, some Orthodox Jews in that category. They, they've just never heard the good news of Jesus. But again, that, that's another discussion because then you can get into the whole issue. Well, they have the, the Old Testament, they have the Torah, the Tanakh right there for them, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, but, but again, anybody who rejects the person and work of Jesus Christ is not going to heaven. And that, that is plain. We're going to leave aside the discussion for the present moment of 
What about those who have never heard? And I would assume, although I, I couldn't absolutely state, that the theoretical Orthodox Jew that you're describing here is someone who has rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, understand this. If we claim to love, honor, and trust God, but reject Jesus, then there's something wrong in that claim. Because Jesus is, he was when he walked this earth and he remains to the present day, the perfect expression of God to humanity. So much so that the Bible tells us, if you want to know what the invisible God who dwells in heaven, reigns in heaven is like, look at Jesus Christ. Therefore, for someone to knowingly reject Jesus is for them to reject God. For them to turn their back on Jesus is for them to turn their back on God. So, again, anyone who has consciously rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ is not going to heaven, and they will have eternity in separation from God, no matter what their religious background is. And again, uh, that would apply even to uh, the Jewish people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I, I, I hope I'm clear to you in that answer. And uh, that means I'll move on to the next question from Carmel. Carmel is one of our YouTube listeners and asks this question from Psalm 51, verse 16. Uh, For you did not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. Let me go back to this here. You did not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. I see that God desires a repentant heart instead but were there sins the blood of animals didn't cover? Okay, well, let me explain it to you this way, Carmel. The blood of animals could not cover any sin completely or perfectly. Um, it was sort of an anticipation of the future payment, the future fulfillment uh, that would be brought by Jesus the Messiah. So there was no complete covering of sin from any animal sacrifice. And I'll tell you one way that we know this. One way that the book of Hebrews explains that we know this. We know this because um, the animal sacrifices had to be repeated continually. And if a perfect payment for sins was made the payment would not have to be repeated. I mean, we know this from financial debts that we have in the present day and age. Um, if you perfectly pay a financial debt, how much more do you have to pay? Well, the answer is zero, none, absolutely nothing. But if you don't perfectly pay a financial debt, you always have to pay more. So only the work of Jesus could perfectly pay for even a single sin. Animal sacrifices were always intended to be temporary, to be imperfect, and to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make, the perfect sacrifice. So I hope that's helpful for you there, 
Carmel in answering uh, that question. Hey, before I go any further and get on to the next question that comes from Nancy, thank you for your question, Nancy. I'll get to it in just a moment. I do want to say that um, our question and answer program next week will be different. It'll be unusual. God willing, and if we live, I will be doing it live from the Middle East. Um, I'm not going to say which specific country I'm going to broadcast from next week, but the plan is that next Thursday, I'm going to be in the Middle East. We're going to be meeting, and I'll be speaking at some churches. I'll be meeting with Christian leaders, and especially I want to connect with people in the Middle East about the Arabic translation of our Bible commentary. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary is translated into Arabic. The entire New Testament is completed. A big proportion of the Old Testament is completed, and we're working on more all the time. And I really have a heart and a hunger that uh, this commentary is made available, and at least that believers in the Arabic-speaking world are known of it. So I'm going to be traveling with my good friend Lance Ralston, and next week, I want you to tune in for sure, Again, God willing and technical things allowing and everything else, our uh, program will be coming to you from a Middle Eastern nation. And as for which nation, well, we'll announce that next week during our question and answer time. So again, I I hope you can join us next Thursday. All right, on to the next question from Nancy. Nancy asks, what's your view of medical marijuana? All right, Nancy. Um, I will certainly agree and allow, although you could say, well, what's up for me to allow? I'll just agree with the idea that there can be a legitimate medicinal use for marijuana and the chemicals that are in marijuana. You know, uh, people talk about CBD. They talk about the different aspects, the different chemicals. That are, I, I believe that there's definitely a legitimate medical use for marijuana and some of the things that are in it. Um, What I think uh, needs to be taken care of is a few things. Number one, uh, since marijuana is a mood and, uh, you know, personality, in some sense, at least temporarily, altering substance, if it's to be taken medicinally, it should be taken from the instruction and according to the directions of a um, medical doctor. In other words, self-medicating with drugs such as, I'm not talking about taking an aspirin on your own. Aspirin doesn't do anything to alter your mood or temporarily your personality, but, but marijuana does. If it's going to be taken medicinally, it should be under a doctor's direction and according to a doctor's order. Um, I don't think somebody should self-medicate with marijuana as much as I would think somebody shouldn't self-medicate with alcohol. It's just not proper. So we shouldn't self-medicate. It should be done under the direction and under the advice of a doctor. But under those circumstances, I can certainly see why there may be a legitimate medicinal use for marijuana and the substances that are in them. And you know, look, I'm no expert on these things. I don't want to act as if I am an expert. But from what I do know, uh, apparently there are ways to get the medical benefits 
from the substances that are in marijuana without getting the aspect of it that gets people high, that gets people altered in their consciousness, their awareness, or in their, in their personality, even if it's just temporary. So uh, I, I think that that's an important thing to recognize. As much as somebody can do it without those, um, uh, you know, consciousness or, 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 you know, personality or awareness altering things, the, the better it is for them. Look, I, I'm speaking in sort of awkward language. I don't have a sophisticated vocabulary when it comes to talking about drugs and the effect that they have. So forgive me for uh, the, the imprecision in my vocabulary. Hope that helps you there, Nancy. Uh, let me go on to the next question from Jessica from YouTube. Jessica asks, in the last three years, uh, the last three years have been very interesting. In your perspective, what have been some good things you've seen come forth through the madness? Well, look, um, on the one hand, it's very sad that there seems to be less confidence in our human institutions than ever before. Less confidence in um, governments, less confidence in public health organizations, less confidence in, in people who claim to speak for science, uh, less confidence in, uh, you know, economists, uh, all, all these uh, things. There is less confidence in human institutions. Now, there's a downside to that, I understand. But friends, isn't there a, a wonderful upside to that? Our confidence in God and his word can and should be at an all-time high. We understand who God is and what he's doing in this world. And we just say, even if we don't understand the details, we understand that God is at work in the world. And anything that uh, contributes to just a greater confidence in God and his work at all is something that we can and that we should be grateful for. So that's one thing. I also see that God has sort of given to churches and to ministries in our day and age um, a whole new toolbox of, of opportunities. Uh, l listen, uh, we know how to do online ministry better than ever. We we've worked through tough issues and maybe some of us in the world of church and ministry feel like we fumbled them or haven't handled them. Listen, you, you will hopefully be equipped to handle similar things better should they come up in the future. And so there's a lot that we've learned in the midst of this. Uh, but I would also say this, is that times of pressing and trial, uh, in Jesus Christ, they don't kill us. And even if they were to kill us in the here and now, they wouldn't kill us for eternity. Uh, but they press us on to the Lord. And they, they are the cause of growth and, and death to self. And friends, those are always good things. So Jessica, I, I see that God is doing good things. He's shaking the institutions and the, uh, the confidence of man and he's bringing us to a greater understanding of, of what we can do to trust in God and in his work, as well as giving us a new toolbox of ministry that we can have and use, and uh, as well as um, really working in this to help us die to self. 
death to self is always a good thing in the Christian life. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Barry, YouTube as well. What's my favorite worship hymn? Oh, you know, my favorite worship hymn would probably be... um, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking because there's so many wonderful, amazing hints. It it would have to be though, Barry, holy, holy, holy. I mean, you, you ever just sat down and and read, uh, the the lines to that beautiful hymn. Uh, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, um, cherubim and seraphim casting down their crowns to thee. Um, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky. And say again, we could go on and on. Uh, if I had to pick one, maybe it would be holy, 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 but there's so many wonderful, great hymns. Look, I don't know if you've ever done this. For a season in my devotional life, I read and would even sing in a low voice. I mean, it was my kind of personal devotional time. But I would read and sing a lot of hymns. And uh, it was a wonderful part of my devotional routine. And uh, my devotional routines, you know, sort of are always changing. Um, I I haven't had been locked into the same devotional routine over the decades. Uh, Now my emphasis is in a lot of the Psalms that I'll read and meditate on. And of course, wonderful times of prayer and prayer with my wife daily. But um, yeah, hymns are beautiful. And if I had to pick one, Barry, it would probably be holy, holy, holy. All right, let me go on to the next question uh, from YouTube, from uh, Andrea. It says, in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham circumcises his son as a sign of the new covenant. We see that he includes Ishmael in that. What does that mean? Are Ishmael and his descendants part of the new covenant? All right, Andrea, I'm going to correct you on a few things on your question here. So let's walk through your question just as you have stated it. Okay. You say that Abraham circumcises his sons as a sign of the new covenant. Okay, but here's the point. No, circumcision is not a sign of the new covenant. It is, as stated, the sign and the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm sorry for kind of picking on this point, and I don't mean to pick on you, Andrea. But I see a clear distinction in the Bible between the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And I'm not saying that there's no overlap over those. There is definitely some overlap, but they are distinct covenants. And Ishmael and Isaac had circumcision impressed on them because They were members of Abraham's household. Now, not every person in Abraham's household received the covenant and passed it on to their descendants. This is why we speak of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then, of course, the 12 covenant sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone in Abraham's household was circumcised, including his servants. Now, again, we understand that they 
didn't share in that covenant in the same way. They shared in the blessing that Abraham is being part of his household, but they did not receive the Abrahamic covenant as an inheritance to pass on into their subsequent households. But again, that's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to recognize something. Circumcision is said to be the sign and the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. Nowhere does it say that it is the sign or the seal of the new covenant. As a matter of fact, nowhere does the Bible say that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Nowhere. That is completely absent. The Bible does not say that baptism is the sign or the seal of the new covenant. And friends, if I am misinformed and somebody can give me a chapter or verse where it says plainly that baptism is the sign and the seal of the new covenant, I'd be happy to see it. Matter of fact, I would say that Jesus gave us a specific sign of the new covenant and it was the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper of communion. He said, this is the sign of the new covenant. The new covenant was not given as a sign in baptism, but rather in the Lord's Supper. So, um, the covenant of circumcision, or not the covenant, the, the covenant um, connected with circumcision, the Abrahamic covenant, and then you could say it transitioned into the old covenant as well, because it was also a command under the Mosaic law, but the Mosaic law was made with the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was applied to all the males in Abraham's household. So obviously Ishmael could not be excluded from that. Rather, he was included as well was um, Isaac, the covenant descendant of Abraham. So again, um, Andrea, I hope that helps there, but I, I did want to, I don't want you to feel like I'm picking on you at all. But I did just want to make it clear that the covenant of circumcision um, uh, that's denoted there in that, that circumcision is never said to be a sign and the seal of the new covenant. All right, let me go on to the next question. Again, from YouTube, from Allison, who asks, can we create art and a beautiful home if it is for God's glory? Allison, I'll give you a very quick and direct answer to that question, yes. I'll even say absolutely yes. Of course. These are things that glorify God. Art, beauty. Th these are things that God gives us a desire for as men and women who are made in his image. And we, as being the people of God, should even have a greater heart for these things. We serve a beautiful God who has put a lot of beauty into this world, it's proper that whatever domain God gives us authority over is marked by the order, the beauty, the art that God expresses himself in so beautifully and powerfully throughout all creation. I would give an unreserved yes to your question there, Allison. Um, these are things that should belong to us as Christians. So God bless you in your heart 
to create art and to make a beautiful home, I think it honors God and it gives glory to him. I think it delights God. These are wonderful, legitimate pursuits for a believer to have concern for. Great question there, Allison. Let me go on to the next question from uh, L. L. Brock, uh, writing from YouTube. Who decided that the Holy Spirit is a personality? I'm having a hard time believing that it should be spirit and not the spirit of God in me as an imager of him. Okay, well, L. Brock, um, I'm glad that you asked this question. It's a question that comes up from time to time. But if you ask who decided that the Holy Spirit is a personality, I would just say simply that God decided. Again, over and over in the word of God, Elbrock, the Holy Spirit is presented to us as a distinctive person, not as a force, not as something or a power that just dwells in us, but as a person. And so it's entirely appropriate to speak of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that for some of us, it's difficult to kind of get our head around the idea, how can a spirit be a person? But again, this is no problem for God. We know that in some respect, in some respect, even though angelic beings can and sometimes do take on a material appearance, they are spirit beings, and they're certainly persons. So there is a definite personality to the Holy Spirit. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is referred to with the pronoun he. You'll never see the pronoun she applied to the Holy Spirit, but he. Uh, it, God identifies the Holy Spirit, identifies, if I could say, in the masculine and as a person. Of course, we're not trying to say that the Holy Spirit is a man, but God represents the Spirit of God to us as a person and in the masculine, not in the feminine or neuter sense. We're also told that the Holy Spirit can be grieved, um, has a will, makes decisions, guides, and leads, and these are all things that persons do, not non-personal powers. So really, um, Elbrock, all we're simply trying to do is take our understanding of who God is as much as possible, and it's not perfectly possible for anybody, but as much as possible for us, we want to take our understanding of who God is from the book, from the Bible itself. And God helping us, that's exactly what we'll do. And when we do that, we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force or power. Next question, I'll go on, comes again from our YouTube channel, from Danielle. Um, asks us, piggybacking off of Nancy's earlier question, what are your thoughts on psychotropic medications such as used to test, or I think you mean probably treat, depression and anxiety? Danielle, look, um, I, I can give you my opinion, and I'm happy to do that. With, with the, the caveat, of course, I'm not a doctor. And I, I haven't done in-depth research on this subject. 
Um, all, all I can speak to you is what uh, medical doctors have spoken to me and, and some of what I just sense looking about is that it can be true that number one, there, there is a real and legitimate place for what you term uh, psychotropic medications, th things that deal with real problems and difficulties in brain chemistry, because though there is definitely a spiritual aspect to the brain and the mind, there's also a biological aspect to it. So there is a legitimate place for such medications. We can believe that. And we can believe that at the same time, in general, they are wildly overprescribed. I think both things can be true. So I'm not going to speak to the individual use. That, that um, has to do with an individual's assessment with hopefully a wise and ethical doctor. Um, but we can also say that in general, these things can be widely overprescribed in the Western world. Look, I, I had a medical doctor tell me about the community that I live in, Santa Barbara. He told me, and, and look, I'm sure this wasn't like done by a survey, just by his own observation and all knowledge. He said, a third of our city is on antidepressants. Now, while not wanting to deny the legitimate use of such a thing to any individual, you can say that in general, such things can be overprescribed. So uh, that, that's the best I can tell you about that, Danielle. Um, again, God has put our spirit in connection with these bodies. And bodies can need medical treatment. And sometimes the medical treatment that our body needs affects things that are non-material, our mind, our brain. And there's a legitimate place for that kind of treatment and inquiry. Thank you for that question there, Danielle. Let me go on to the next question from Hillary. Um, what promises are for the Jews only in the Bible? Hillary, that's a very good question. And it's a question that you should understand that different Christian traditions and different Christian uh, approaches to interpreting the Bible will give you different answers to that. So I'll give you the answers that I understand and from my own study of the scriptures. Um, I would just simply say this, that for example, the promises of restoration to the land of Israel belong to the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, that That's something that belongs to them. And again, I do want to recognize and 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 that that there's difference of opinion of that in different Christian traditions, but that that's my understanding from the most straightforward explanation of the promises of a land that God gave to the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout all the Hebrew scriptures and extending even into the New Testament, that there are promises that remain for those covenant descendants. Another promise is that before the glorious return of Jesus Christ, there will be a turning of the Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we find this reference again many times in the Old Testament and many times in the New Testament. So that is a promise that is for the Jews only. There is no such general promise to all the Gentile nations. Um, not in the same way, not in the same manner. So those are a couple things. God gave a special privilege and stewardship to the Jewish people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the carriers of his revelation to the world, to be the people that would bring forth the Messiah, to have an enduring role in his unfolding plan of the ages. God has ordained all of these things for the Jewish people. Uh, their status as being the chosen people, not chosen for universal salvation, but chosen for this enduring role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. That's a choosing of them that has been, at the same time, sometimes a blessing and sometimes a burden. All right, let me continue on here. Um, question from Joshua from YouTube. In the midst of the confused cancel culture relativism today, what are some true history books that you may recommend? Hmm. Joshua, right behind me on the shelf. I'm going to turn around. You can see this on the shelf behind me. I'm going to recommend to you the best Christian history that I've ever read. It's in two volumes by Kenneth Scott Laderette, A History of Christianity. Folks, this is amazing. This is an amazing uh, development of the history of Christianity. So that's something that I would recommend uh, without any reservation. Um, I, I, I mean, there's other resources, I suppose. There's other, a church history in plain language is good. Um, but look, I, I would just say read broadly and read discerningly. Um, I, I, I'm not in to presentism, and that is judging or writing off figures of the past um, because of modern um, ideas and convictions. Um, even if those modern convictions and that are, are godly and biblical, we, we need to understand the past as it is, not to excuse and certainly not to condemn but at least to understand things in their context. So um, there's a lot great out there to read. I would just give a recommendation of Kenneth Scott Laderette's um, A History of Christianity. And then another question from Ashton, uh, again, coming from our YouTube channel. Ashton asks, I'm 18 and desire to propose to my girlfriend this year. Can you offer me some biblical and practical advice? Okay, Ashton, um, I don't know much about your particular situation uh, because I, I don't know if you have a way to make a good living for yourself right here, right now. Uh, I don't know if you can provide for a family uh, the way that a, a man should be able to provide or at least substantially provide, maybe not universally, maybe your wife has to work for a period of time. Uh, but if you're in a position to provide, uh, if you're in a position to lead, uh, so I can't speak to those things. In general, well, Ashton, let me just tell you how it was for me. 
My wife and I got married when we were relatively young. I was 20 years old when we got married. And for me, it was a blessing. Now, I can't apply that to everybody. Of course not. Every life situation is different. And the last thing I want to do is push someone into marriage before it's time for them. But I'll say what it was for me is that it was a blessing for me and my wife to kind of grow up together. And let's face it, when you're in your 20s, and Ashton, you're only 18, when you're in your 20s, you still have growing up to do. I suppose in some sense we have growing up to do our entire life. But it was a blessing for my wife to build, for my wife and myself, for us to build a life together. And look, I know that that just isn't a matter of choice. Uh, you know, we, we can tell people, well, you should get married young. And some people say, well, I would love to, but first of all, I'm not young anymore. And other people might say, you know, I, I want to get married young, but I don't want to marry the wrong person. Absolutely. But Ashton, I, I would say um, it's a good thing if God brings you the right person to build a life together with in your young years. That's something that God can really use. Practically, um, spend time with people who have marriages that you admire. Don't expect to have the same marriage that they have right away. It takes time. It takes time to build such a thing. But God will use those years and build, I think, something wonderful and something beautiful. So, Ashton, I have no idea how long your engagement is. I don't know when you're planning on getting married, but I can just say, uh, offer up a prayer for you, Ashton, that God um, blesses you and guides you and your soon-to-be fiancé and gives you wisdom and that you really try to spend time and learn from people who have marriages you respect because that is indeed a great blessing. Okay, now look, um, that's going to be our last question for the day. Look, if we didn't get to your question, I'm sorry, and don't despair. We make record of these questions, and very many of them we get to in subsequent question and answer times. So uh, our moderator is choosing questions based on both what we have time for and then also based on um, what we think will have an appeal to our widest audience. Um, but again, thank you for joining me. Next week, God willing, and if we're able, uh, we're going to be live from the Middle East. And I'll be doing our question and answer program from there. I sure hope you can join me. I'm looking forward to it. And we'll be back here together at the same time. I'll be in a different place, but I'll still be on your computer reaching you through TWR360. YouTube Live or Facebook Live, whatever it is, or by the miracle of tape delay. I hope you can join us for that. Uh, we look forward to it. So God bless you. Thank you for being able to join us. And uh, we hope to see you next week. Thanks so much. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.